Good morning and welcome to Everyday Law. I am your host, Bob Clark. We are having a great privilege today in having State Treasurer Nancy Kopp on the program. Welcome to the program, Treasurer Kopp. Thank you, Bob. It's good to be here. As always, anything that is said on this show is not intended to be legal advice for individual specific situations. And the opinions and thoughts that we offer on this show are not those of Howard County Community College, its student, faculty, or staff. And with that caveat, let's dig into uh, the state treasurer's activities. Uh, how are you, first of all? Uh, very well, thank you. Although I am recovering from what used to be called a summer cold. And ah, I yes. cough occasionally. In these days, having a summer cold is a great thing because it's not something else. But, no, it's uh, true, but probably terrifying initially. Yes, right. So aside from that, swell. Very good, very good. Your job is intriguing to me, and I have a feeling that the people of Howard County and the students don't really know a great deal about what the state treasurer does. Could you give us a general description of what your job is and what you do? Yeah, sure. And I think you're absolutely right. People don't know about the state treasurer. And compared to other offices, you know, I was in the legislature for 27 years. And when we met with other state legislators, you knew what they did. State treasurer's office varies significantly from state to state. But in Maryland, the main functions are investment of the state money, the cash flow money. Sure. Um, the comptroller collects it, the revenue, and then we bank it and invest it. And then we reconcile what's in the bank with what's on his, his books. And then we also lead the state to the bond market twice a year for general obligation bonds, about a billion dollars a year altogether. Most of that going to education, K through 12 and community colleges and colleges and local facilities like hospitals, jails, etc. And the third thing that we do that you hear a great deal about is, of course, to serve on the Board of Public Works with the governor and the comptroller. And we meet every other week for a couple of hours and look at and approve, or on very rare occasions, don't approve, up to about, uh, as I recall, something like $400 million a session, usually. Wow. And that is a fascinating part of the job. Actually, the late Marvin Mandel, Governor Mandel, used to say his favorite part of the job, not that I'm sure I believe him, but his favorite part of, of the job of being governor was the Board of Public Works, because twice a month, you get an idea, an insight into what's happening all over the state in different communities, public and private, the fire stations all over the state, the hospitals all over the state, the major contracts, of course, for services like health, all the COVID-related things and everything. But it, it's a tremendous insight into the state. And it is a public transparent meeting where decisions are approved that in other states uh, are made behind closed doors in an executive office. So that's, that's a very significant part of the function that's quite different from other states. One of the other things is that the treasurer in Maryland is not elected at large. The treasurer is elected by the state legislature. 
for a four-year term. The, one of the first things the legislature come, does when they come into session after their election, and for instance, the next election will be January 2023 election of the treasurer, is to, is to elect the treasurer. And particularly when you combine that with the role on the Board of Public Works, it gives the legislature and the people of the state through the legislature insight as I said, into decisions that are usually made only in the executive branch and are not made publicly. One of the virtues, as you know, I was in the legislature myself for 27 years representing the Bethesda area of Montgomery County. Where I grew up. Um, Yes, well. Connie Morella back in my days and those guys. Connie Morella. Connie Morella and I served in the House of Delegates for eight years together, same district, a good friend. But I don't raise money. It's not like running at large. It's not even like running for the General Assembly. Don't raise money. Don't spend money. I have 188 constituents, the members of the House and Senate, and they all pay attention to what's happening, and they all vote. So it is in many ways, if I stand back and look at it as a political scientist, which was what I planned to be decades ago, it's a fascinating and quite unusual position. And doubtless, you plotted a course from your earliest days in elementary school to be Maryland State Treasurer, correct? <laughs> well, I went to elementary school in Chicago, actually, and had no idea of moving to Maryland. Now, where did you grow up in Chicago? Hyde Park. Okay. My I live in Northfield. Okay. Well, my family was from Winnetka, from the North Shore of Chicago. I used to go to Winnetka yeah. all the time to go to the movies. Yes. Yeah, a good movie theater. A great movie theater. But I grew up in Chicago and then. My folks moved and I went to high school in California, college in Boston. And while I was in Boston, my folks moved to Maryland in 1963. In fact, my dad was going to work for the Kennedy administration. And of course, President Kennedy was assassinated about three months after we moved there. But so I came to Maryland, not knowing Maryland government really very well. And one of the first things that I did when we moved here, my mother dragged me to a Montgomery County League of Women Voters series of meetings called Know Your County. And that was my introduction really to the state. So I think I can sort of say as somebody coming in from the outside that we have an amazing state, a great state, our form of government. I think our structure of government is unusual and strong and good. And the diversity of the of the people and the diversity of the land from the from the shore to the mountains is really pretty unique. And I have grown obviously to to love the state, but there are not many states that have only 24 jurisdictions and each jurisdiction a school district. So you have a very simple, straightforward structure of government. And we have two taxes at the state level, major taxes income tax and sales tax, and then income tax and property tax at the local level. And certain portion of that income tax actually is redistributed through a progressive school funding formula and some similar things. So that it is a really very straightforward and I think well-organized system of finance and and of government. And I must say the bond rating agencies seem to think so also. They do. I would imagine as COVID evolved, 
it was disconcerting. I mean, there was a thought that states across the country were going to have insufficient funds from oh, their yeah. tax revenues, whether because of income tax or because of state tax. And it, it appears, at least from reading in the papers and that sort of thing, that things have turned out rather well almost everywhere. Is that also true for Maryland? Yes, it is true for Maryland. I think in large part because unlike in the Great Recession, the federal government acted very quickly and money came in, federal funds came in either directly to companies, you remember, the to keep people employed, or to sure. individual families, actual checks, and those funds were spent. Some of them were saved because people didn't know what was happening down the road, but a lot of them were spent, and that means they were spent in Maryland on taxable items, a lot of them. So the, the economy kept going, and in Maryland, again, one of the reasons we have a AAA bond rating, we have a very highly educated workforce, by and large, and a diverse economy, which means that people can pivot, if necessary, among job, among industries, unlike some places like the old Detroit, where everybody knew one job, and if that job went down, you had real problems. As it turns out, Maryland's economic structure, we have a relatively small number of people in the industries that were hit the hardest. They were hit very hard, hospitality, food, that sort of thing. But first of all, they're not a large part of our economy. And secondly, again, going back to our tax structure, we have a pretty progressive income tax. So the people at the lowest, lowest end really do not pay as much proportionally in income tax as people at the middle and higher ends, which means that the ongoing revenue expected was not hit as hard. So the people who were hit the hardest were the people who were earning the less and paying the least in taxes. That was a terrible situation. And sure. we had to jump in and help the community. But in terms that you're asking about Maryland state finances, we were in better position than a lot of other states. Than most. I mean, it's, it's intriguing because there's, you know, parts of Maryland that are very reminiscent of West Virginia, which is a state that's just had so many troubles through the years. Yes. And I recognize yeah. there were lots of jobs in coal and that sort of thing. It's just intriguing that it's sandwiched between a bunch of places, Virginia, Maryland, even Pennsylvania, Ohio, that have been successful. And yet it seems to have lagged behind. And I'm not sure what the formula for rescuing West Virginia is. I hope Joe Manchin finds it soon. Right. Um, yeah. And again, there are areas in West Virginia, just like in, in Maryland, that are doing well. But you're right. It's it's sort of nestled in the middle of, of states that are that are doing better. Beautiful place. Nice. Virginia people. also is doing well. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Very well. So I did comment before we started the show that you have a mere 20 years under your belt in your position as a treasurer. And I observed that uh, the first treasurer, Thomas Harwood, served from 1775 to 1804. And then a relative of his, I'm uncertain whether it's a son or a brother or something, served 22 years from 1804 to 1826. And I wondered where you think you're going to land in the pantheon of services treasurer in Maryland. Well, I gather from you, I'll be in the top three. You're in three. I mean, are we going to get two more years out of these? I don't make decisions ahead of time, but I would be surprised, Bob. Well, I'm grateful. 
Go ahead. I'm I can serve the longest of the uh, 21st century thus okay. far. That's a good point. People can't really compete in that department. <laughs> I also, we were talking a little bit, you know, obviously you're more steeped in the history of it than I, about how there were treasures of the Eastern shore and the Western shore historically. And yeah. you made some observations to me about kind of the connection between the Eastern shore and Delaware and all that sort of thing. I wondered if you kind of discourse on that just a little bit. Yeah, it, it, it's fascinating because we have to sort of abstract ourselves from the present and think about Maryland before the Bay Bridge. And at that time, the Eastern shore was much more closely connected to Delaware socially, politically to Delaware, than the Western Shore, the rest of Maryland was. The rest of Maryland was much closer to the South because the Mason-Dixon line ran between Pennsylvania and Maryland. So that there was a time in the 60s, I was saying, when I grew up, when people thought the Eastern Shore was just its own little conservative, different world. Sure. And I also said we came to learn that there's the diversity on the shore just as there is on, in Western Maryland and not to stereotype. But if you were going to stereotype pre-Bay Bridge, Maryland, the Eastern Shore would be the more liberal part of the state, the more Northern-oriented part of the state, and the rest of the state more, more Southern-oriented. And I think that's fascinating. It does demonstrate how history can change perceptions of things, because you know, certainly the voting patterns over on the Eastern Shore, whether it's having Congressman Andy Harris or, you know, voting for Trump or all that sort of stuff, you know, we're strongly conservative on the Eastern Shore. So it really does represent a, a shift of significance. Yeah. It also shows what the impact of infrastructure can be. Is that why they divided up into Eastern Shore and Western Shore? Because there were different priorities, that being predominantly an agricultural place? Or, or do you have a sense of why that was historically? No, I really don't. I really don't because our economy has changed. So, you know, Montgomery County was an agricultural area. Right. So it, George's it, County was. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. I don't usually make generalizations. I think that's the prudent approach in your, in particular in your work. So a couple things, you talked a little bit about coming out to Howard Community College or interacting with Howard Community yeah. College on a variety of things. And since that is our home and our primary audience, I wondered if you share a little of that with us. Sure, I, I will. And, and let me say also, when I was in the General Assembly for probably 20 years, I chaired the House Appropriations Subcommittee on Education. And first it was Education Human Resources and then Education Economic Development. And one of the reasons that I did, and one of the things I learned from that, is to have a tremendous respect for Maryland education, and most particularly what I was focusing on, which was higher ed, including the community colleges, which are among our great strengths. And again, one of the things we talked to the rating agencies about. But yeah, I was visiting Howard County along with some legislators who were very interested in the burgeoning farm-to-table movement. And we were talking to people at the Howard Community College and they were joining in and becoming a linchpin, not only in helping the food move and the development of the food, but actually understanding and trying to explain to people in the community the importance of what we call locavore. First of all, it supports local agriculture. Secondly, it means you don't have to transport things miles and miles and miles, wasting gasoline 
and polluting the air and people get good, fresh food. And of course, then we move on to let's have more local farms. Let's connect the people with the food and eat more healthily. And this whole thing was, my impression was it was jumped on by these people in, in Howard County, including at the community college. And it's going to be a significant hub for, uh, for development. I mean, it it's interesting big. when you think about the University of Maryland College Park, it was an agricultural school at its inception. When I went there a million years ago, I remember they had the cows with, they had these big plastic holes so you could reach into their stomach. It was just an amazing, I mean, I think it is still exists in that manner, but not like it was in 1856 kind of thing. Oh, great ice cream too. Oh, great ice cream, great ice cream. So we previously had as a guest, uh, Comptroller Peter Francho on, and it was interesting because we got into a little bit of a, an issue that is near and dear to everyone who lives near Washington, D.C. I'm 30 year, I former 30 year Montgomery County resident, now a 22 year Howard County resident and proud. But with the Beltway oh, and yeah. 270, and I'm going to talk about it just generally and then maybe slightly more specifically. And, you know, if there's things you can't talk about, that's perfectly fine. But it is the thing that I think gets the most attention for the Board of Public Works. One of the things that's wonderful about your office and the structure of the Board of Public Works is you have a Republican governor and Larry Hogan, two terms, and Peter Francho, identifiably Tacoma Park, Democrat historically, perhaps slightly more conservative in his role as comptroller, but you know, <laughs> won't touch that one. And then, then you have you there. And it really does compel both parties to work together, notwithstanding where they might stand on broader issues. And I, I think it's a wonderful thing. And I'd be intrigued to hear what you have to say about that. No, I agree. I think the Board of Public Works, as I said, is wonderful because it provides a vehicle for transparency that doesn't exist in most states. And obviously, in order to approve things, you only have to count to two. But as I'm sure Peter pointed out to you, most votes are three to nothing. But And that's because basically by the time issues come before us, they usually have been settled, problems that have arisen. And sometimes we, we have issues with, with proposals before they come to us. We have questions. We need more development of information. And, and the executive branch is usually very happy, the agencies, to explain more fully the nature of their proposals, the background of their proposals. So by the time we get them, they've been vetted. And that means basically that there is more consensus and things can be done in a civil manner, which is very important to me. I'm, I'm very big on process. I think process is very, very important. And it's sort of like the law. If the procedure is open and consistent, it means people are treated more fairly. So, and in order to have this sort of system, I think we come to the realization, most things are not ideological. Most things are not even matters of quote, principle. They're basic issues that come before us when you're talking about, should you build a road or not? Do we need to procure this particular item or not? It's a factual thing. It's not a theoretical sure. thing. So I think that lends itself also to less partisan, less ideological looks at things. Now, obviously, as you come closer to an election and people are running for election, it's also a platform for setting forth your positions. And so it's both. 
But in that issue, you've touched on an issue that that's very interesting to me, that's important to me for a couple of reasons. First of all, the treasurer by law is required to look at this potential contract. We're talking about a public-private partnership worth billions of dollars and in practical terms, decades in duration. We're talking about contracts that will last really for the next 50, relationships that will last for the next 50 years. So these are important structures. With international companies. With, in this case, with, with international companies. You bet, who are the companies that do a lot of infrastructure? Sure, sure. In Virginia, for example. In Virginia. Yeah. So the treasurer, by law, is supposed to look at the issue, the contract, and report to the Board of Public Works and the legislature on the financial implications. And one of the things we've learned from another recent experience with a P3, public-private partnership, the purple line, right. is that even when you have all the contractual terms in front of you and you can finally look at what the impact is going to be, things can still go wrong, as they did. Indeed. And the costs still become larger than we anticipated, which is not to say it's not a great project, and it will be, I think, a great investment for the- A great investment. Here it is. But when you're looking at it as a project and you want to assess what the fiscal impact is from the beginning, it's not an easy thing to do. It's, it's much more complex than saying, we're going to bond $20 million and build this little road. Sure. So we were the treasurer was supposed to report on the implications financial implications of this particular project, not whether the bridge, which is about five miles from my house, and I know it needs needs improvement, not whether the bridge should be improved, not whether a highway should be improved, but whether this project, what the financial implications are. And one of my concerns was that the governor brought to us, his former Secretary of Transportation, brought to us this public-private partnership because he said, we can't afford to make improvements any other way. And we said, well, could you please show us the numbers and show us the reasoning that led to that conclusion? Because that's a conclusion. It shouldn't be just a, a foregone assumption. We never were able to see those numbers. And that's one of the reasons I had serious hesitation. I keep getting messages, vote for this because we need to improve transportation. Well, of course we need to improve transportation, but you have to do it in a wise and fiscally prudent way. And we don't have, I believe, obviously the comptroller and governor disagree, I don't believe we have the information with any transparency, certainly, I haven't seen the information, that leads us to commit all this money. And let me assure you, there will be public funds. Clearly, everyone who pays the toll, a large portion of the people who pay the tolls are Maryland citizens. But in addition, there can be backups. There just have to be financial backups. There has to be participation. There are also some other environmental issues. And let me just one hobby horse. I really do think we should have transportation plans, and I hope the next governor will be able to show us transportation plans that look at the total uh, transportation picture, not highway by highway 
or bridge by bridge, but looking for the next 50, 60 years in an era that is facing a crisis because of climate change, what is the best way to move goods and people? Don't we have to look at land use issues and not simply assume things are going to be the way we, they are now and we have to get all the cars back and forth? We just have to look at this total picture and we haven't seen that. It's one of the things that intrigues me that it used to be that we built the American highway system and and it wasn't like, and I'm not trying to offend Australians or the company that's proposing to do this, but we weren't getting Australian private companies to come in and do these things. We did them. And right. I recognize the costs are staggering. But on the other hand, it would be so much more wonderful if the state of Maryland could do what it needed to do, or the state of Maryland in conjunction or through a compact with Virginia and the district, right. if we could do these things because it's hard for me to imagine that private companies are willing to commit this amount of money without the prospect of making an equally large amount of money. Well, let, let me also say, you asked what the treasurer did, and I mentioned what the Office of State Treasurer does. The treasurer does other things. One of the things I have done for the last 15 years is to chair the state pension board, the board of trustees for the pension system. We invest in infrastructure. The reason we invest in infrastructure is to make money so that we can support the pension system. Of course, you expect them to make a profit, but that's one of the things that we would like to look at. People don't invest for pro bono. You do wonderful pro bono work, but these infrastructure, these building companies do not do it for pro bono reasons. So you're right. We should at least have the numbers there, again, to be able to balance and understand them. As, as a final matter, because I know we've run out of time, when we had Comptroller Francho on, he made noise at the end of the interview that he was going to join you in opposing the project at the Board of Public Works. And it actually caused a, an increase in the overall viewing of the show. I had people calling mm. me, and it purportedly was the first time he had publicly said this. So when I later read that he had changed his mind, I presumed that there was new information or something, but I was very much surprised because you have to remember, he always seemed like a straight shooter. Yeah, I'm sure Peter would tell you, in the beginning, you remember, this was a widening of the beltway all the way right. around. And I think it was in part because of the comptroller's opposition to that, that in fact, by the time the project was voted on two to, uh, two to one, it was not the same project that had come in originally. Okay. And I, I may have misunderstood Peter's part. Very right when, when he says that I happen to still disagree with, with the final conclusion, but he made a difference, I believe. Good, good. Well, I would like to gab with you more about this because I do think it's one of the most important things in the state of Maryland. But what we'll do simply is let a little time pass. And if you'd be willing to have you back on sometime to discuss further developments. Oh, sure. Yeah. I have to tell you, I saw a little bit or heard a little bit of your recent talk with Judge Houghton, yeah. which I found fascinating. So I'm going oh, to be an avid listener. She's a great, no, I would, you know, we have an interesting little group of guests periodically, and I do try and ask them things that other people don't. And uh, so, you know, we're, we're, we specialize also in true crime stuff. We've had a bunch of people on associated with making a murderer and with serial and Adnan Syed and stuff. So if that's a, your cup of tea, I yeah. recommend their shows as well. 
Well, I have to tell you personally, I am the wife, sister, daughter, daughter-in-law of lawyers. So I have great respect for the legal profession. And I well, thank you very much. <laughs> well, we're going to sign off now. I'd like to thank Treasurer Nancy Kopp for her appearance. It was wonderful and insightful. Thank you very much. Good seeing you, Bob. And this has been Everyday Law. Farewell. Connect with us. We are Dragon Digital Radio. 